Good morning and thanks for joining us. We are in week two of a message series called Amazing Grace. We're taking a look at what it means to worship God. What do we do? Why do we do it? How can we do it well? Uh, this is what we're exploring through this series. The pandemic has changed the way that the world interacts. It has changed and made it much more complicated because of social distancing, wearing masks, and the possibility of infection. And this includes the way that churches operate and do worship services. And so what does this mean for worship? And how can we continue to worship God in these new ways uh, under these new circumstances? All this uh, month in this series, we're taking a deeper look into scripture to understand some of the basic concepts that we need to know and understand about worship. And then we're putting on our thinking caps and I'm inviting you to think with me for how we might engage in a deeper sense of worship, how we can love the God who has first loved us. Now today, we're going to be taking a look at the concept of bringing to God a new song. This is a concept that's repeatedly, uh, that is repeated in the Old Testament. We're going to take a look at three things today. How this is taught in Scripture, how the people of God have practiced this concept over the centuries, and then I would like to conclude with a challenge for us to consider how we might bring a new song. So be sure to stay uh, attentive to the end today to look at some of the instructions that I'd like to give for how we might respond together. In the Bible, the book of Psalm gives us words and lyrics for how we can connect with God. They give us examples of prayers and worship songs that we can bring to God in the midst of all that we experience. The ups and downs of life, the twists and turns, the highs and the lows. We are given words and examples for how to connect with God. And in the midst of this, we are given this specific instruction, bring a new song to God. Psalm 33 verse 3 says, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. The psalmist is saying here, let's bring a fresh offering to God. Let's bring a new melody. Let's bring today's lyrics. Um, and added here is let's bring this sense of good musicianship and let's shout for joy. Let's bring some energy and emotion to it. Psalm 96.1, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Now, the Psalms were written for the Hebrew people to sing to God. But interestingly enough, Psalm 96 and several other Psalms address the whole earth, the whole world. There's an invitation for all people to join in seeing how amazing and how good and gracious God is. You see, the calling of God on Abraham and the people of God was not only to know God, but to be a kingdom of praise, to share this connection with all the earth. Psalm 98, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. I like this reference because the psalmist is talking about the arms of God. There are other references like this uh, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, most notably when God spoke to Moses about freeing his people from slavery in Egypt, God was going to bear his arms. Now, what does that mean? It means that we worship a God who gets involved in our lives 
and in the mess of our circumstances. God reaches into the mud and the clay and the dirt. He rolls up his sleeves. He gets into it and he saves us. Psalm 144, verse 9. I will sing a new song to you, my God, on the ten-stringed lyre. I will make music to you. And I like this final reference because it's encouraging people to use the musical instruments of the day. The lyre was one of the most popular instruments of the time. And today, we use things like keyboards and guitars and drums and amps and video screens. That's our context. So I'd like to take some time this morning to explain what this means. What does it mean to bring a new song to God? And specifically, what does it not mean? I want to be clear about this, that by bringing a new song to God, we are not saying in the least that old songs are bad or inherently inferior, or that old lyrics and old melodies don't have their place in worship. That's not it at all. And I wanted to clarify this because part of my own spiritual journey, especially with access, has been learning the value of old, older things. When we first started the church, one of the phrases I used to use very frequently, and some of you uh, folks who were with us at the very start, remember that I would introduce Sunday mornings like this. Welcome to Access. We are a spiritual community for people who do not fit well within traditional religious environments. I use that like every week for several years. And why? Because you know, a lot of our experiences, a lot of my experiences in traditional environments were, you know, really stifling, and it prevented me from going deeper with God. Now, a few years into it, I began to shift my thinking. Some folks began to question <laughs> this introduction at church and really offered me some good critique. I mean, what was so wrong with traditional settings? Uh, are the, all traditional settings bad? Uh, and why do we need to define our church over and against other churches or traditional churches? Uh, because the truth was we all had friends, good friends, and family members who led traditional churches, who were deeply engaged in them, who were meeting God significantly in those environments. What was so wrong about that? And I had to think a little bit more deeply. Because honestly, even in some of the non-traditional churches, we've encountered traditions. So I used to serve in a Chinese immigrant church. And when I first got to that church, it was only eight years old. It was a, a non-traditional church, very young and very new. But when I began to shift and change certain things, I realized that I was bumping against their traditions. So on Sunday mornings, in the English congregation that I served, we were always handed a Chinese bulletin as soon as we entered the door. And I wanted to change the language on the front page to English because that was the language of our service. Well, this caused kind of an uproar and it took months and months of negotiating. And I finally had to go to the church council to, to get a vote of approval to make some of those changes. Now, it may not seem like a big deal, but what I had done was I had accidentally stepped on a tradition of a non-traditional church. This happened also when I came to church on a Sunday morning without wearing a tie. Now, there was not a dress code, so to speak, in my job description. Um, and nobody else really wore ties except for pastors. 
And so when I came to preach one day, not wearing a tie, well, the senior pastor got an earful from other people. They were wondering about me. And so I had stepped on another tradition of a non-traditional church. And here's another thing that I learned in the early days of Access is that a lot of traditions were actually breathing life into my soul. Things like spiritual direction, things like the daily office and written prayers, ancient practices that were very uh, deeply part of the church for centuries were really making my life with God come um, more fully alive. There's nothing wrong with older songs, with older traditions. What I think people dislike and what I have learned to dislike are traditions that have lost their sense of meaning and purpose and relationship. And when those things happen, when traditions happen kind of mindlessly, I think we all kind of step back and think, well, that doesn't really make sense and it really doesn't really add any value to our lives. But when we're able to re reconnect tradition with a sense of meaning and purpose, it can be very powerful. And this leads us back to what God taught his people in the Hebrew scriptures. Because one of the things that God repeated often was this phrase, remember, remember. And what God infused into the community life of the people of God was a sense of history and meaning and purpose. So in the book of Deuteronomy, when God was about to bless his people, he told them, before you enter this land, remember. Remember I rescued you from slavery in Egypt? Remember how I led you through the wilderness? Remember how you worshipped a golden calf? See, when I bring you into this land that's going to be full of good things, you're going to be tempted to think that you earn these good things on your own. But it's really, it's really a blessing from the God who rescued you in the first place. So all this to say that this teaching about bringing a new song to God doesn't come from a context like our Western context, which we think old things are inherently bad or outdated. Not at all. There's a spiritual context behind the songs. And the spiritual context is this. Bring your up-to-date faith stories to God. That's what a new song is. It's not that old songs are bad, but we need to bring fresh lyrics and fresh melody because we worship a living God. I have a story to bring to God, and that deserves to be sung and expressed and told and retold as my worship to God. So I thought it'd be interesting this morning to talk about how people have brought new songs to God over the ages, over centuries of time. If we look throughout history, we can see that people brought new song in the broad sense of the meaning, not just new lyrics and music, but really brought new expressions of their praise, of their gratitude. They brought new offerings to God because that's what made sense in their time. And understanding this will help us, I think, inspire us to think how we might do the same thing today. So years ago, I was at a conference for church leaders and got to hear uh, a speaker named Rex Miller, who is a Christian thinker and a futurist and author. And he, he gave some of this history of the church through the lens 
of communication theory and how people have both stored and distributed information over time. And his big idea was this, as those methods of communications have changed for us over time, so has our worship of God. So has our engagement as a church. So has our sense of bringing offerings to God. So for many centuries, for most of humankind, I would say, we have participated in what is called oral culture. That means that the means of distributing uh, and sharing information was done by telling stories and narrative and through poetry, through the singing of songs. And these were digested and repeated. And this was how people remembered their history. It was through oral culture. Now, this is pretty different from the way things operate today. So in order to kind of get a sense of this, I'm going to invite you to imagine what it would be like to live in the first century as you encountered Jesus in a time when oral culture was flourishing. This comes directly from Miller's book. Imagine yourself living in a time when everything you know, including your identity, depends entirely on the verbal communication of trusted and intimate relationships. You have no television, no radio, no Bible, no pavement, no cars, no planes, no watch, no knowledge of world events, no computers, no phones, no malls, no ATM, no credit cards, no electricity. Imagine a world that moves at the speed of walking. Imagine knowing intimately every corner of your village. Imagine actually paying attention each day to what's happening around you. Imagine knowing not only who lives in your village, but all the interconnections, stories, histories, and extended families. You are just as familiar with the rhythms of the natural world, like when it rains and when it when the sun beats down on you, when the, when the cold drives you indoors, when the moon rises, when the sun rises, you know the intimate relationships of the stars in the sky. And imagine this, hearing these words from Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And here again, these words from Jesus but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
oral culture was very different from our time today. And even though some cultures are still heavily dominated by oral culture, we here in our time and in our space here in Houston don't live that way. But, you know, years ago, I was on a trip to Central Asia. And it was really interesting and very enlightening because there's a number of of people and tribes that still are dominated by a sense of oral culture. And when we're spending some time with some missionary friends who were in Central Asia, they described what worship looked like for some of the people who live there who created their own way of worshiping God. They would simply get together on Sundays for a meal. This meal was communion. They would share with each other and then they would take the body and the bread and the cup that reminded them of the covenant with God. And then for the rest of their time together, they simply shared stories. People would get up and share a story of how God was faithful. Someone would share a story of how God had been good to them that week. Some of them would share some scripture and a teaching that they had learned or something that was important to them. So it was a very communal way and not necessarily led by an organized uh, religious priesthood. But this was the way in which they worshiped God in their oral culture-centered way of being. A huge development happened in human history when we started shifting from oral culture to what Miller calls print culture. Print culture came with the advent of the printing press. Now, this is different from just written language because people had been writing down documents for thousands of years. We have records of written documents that have long predated print culture. But this started with the printing press when a guy named Gutenberg invented the printing press and began to massively communicate with everyone through the printed word. So all of a sudden people had books available to them. They can now read for themselves. They were learning about literacy. And this had some big changes on the way that church op churches operated, including uh, the way that people thought logically, scientifically, rationally. These things came because the printed word presents information in a way different than oral culture does. Oral culture relies heavily on the integrity of the speaker, but the printed word, you don't get to see the speaker. You're presented information in this way, and people evaluated the logic of thought in the printed word. Now, this had some implications, like I said, for the church. One of the big ones, of course, was the Reformation. Because all of a sudden, people could read the Word of God on their own. And it wasn't mediated through church tradition. They weren't just hearing about it, but now they were reading it for themselves. A man named Martin Luther began to question many of the traditions of the church at the time. And this led to the breaking of the Protestant church from the Catholic church. But much of that came as a result of people being able to read scripture for themselves and beginning to question traditions that were long held, things like indulgences, which they didn't find in the Bible, but now they were able to read it on their own and see for themselves what a connection with God could look like. This has particular implications for our own denomination in our own context, the Evangelical Covenant Church. In the country of Sweden, where the Evangelical Covenant Church uh, birthed, there was a sort of revival that took place. As people were 
gaining uh, literacy and learning how to read, they also became aware of scripture that they could read for themselves. Now, back in the day, Swedes weren't allowed to just attend any church or have a Bible study in their home. They had to go to a state-sponsored church, and there they would hear official uh, speakers sponsored by the state. And this was a problem because some of the so-called pastors in charge of these churches were just there for a government job. They weren't there to preach the word of God. Some of them didn't even know God. They were just employed by the state. But as people began to learn to read scripture on their own, they invented something called the conventicle, which is really the modern day precursor to our small groups, which are promoting it access. So there's a great legacy behind this for the covenant church. Conventicles met outside of the state church. They met in homes. They began to crack open Bibles and they were reading the word of God. And people were discovering and rediscovering what a connection with God could really look like. This led to revivals and people began coming to God by the hundreds and thousands. It was an amazing sense of revival, which led to the birth of the covenant church. Now, also in print culture, worship began to shift and change because all of a sudden people could come together, open a hymnal where printed lyrics and printed music was shared. Previously in oral culture, people would perform the songs of God by choirs or sometimes by the priesthood, but now people could all share in the same music and it was easy to do that because they had something called the hymnals, which we often think about as old culture, but back in the day, it was new technology where people could sing corporately, sing together and have one voice which they could unite to bring their praises and their thanksgiving to God. A third evolution happened with the advent of what Miller calls broadcast culture, with the advent of television. When this happened, it changed the way people began to see and understand information and distribute information as well. So many of us grew up in broadcast culture. We grew up with television shows, and it shaped the ways that we digest information. Uh, a lot of it through entertainment, with commercial breaks, with shorter attention spans, uh, television programs aren't known for long, sustained arguments like the written word is often uh, communicates. But television brings more senses into it. It's image-based. It's very programmatic. And this shifted the way that churches also began to, to share the word of God. So one of the big things that came with the advent of television were televangelists. This had good and it had bad. So there were people like Billy Graham who were able to use the medium to share with hundreds and thousands of people, even millions of people who would turn, tune in to watch him and hear him deliver the message of Jesus. Some of you may have come to faith through that. I've had friends that remember watching Billy Graham and came to faith themselves. And here is a man with a lot of integrity who was able to share the word of God. But we also had kind of a negative side of that with televangelists who took advantage of the medium to use it for their own financial gain, people with far less integrity. Now, what evolved in terms of worship during this era of broadcast culture was a new way of thinking about 
the worship hour for Sunday, uh, for Sunday gatherings. So for many centuries, the churches have, churches have operated by what we call the church calendar. It's a way of presetting which verses and what readings and what themes will, pre, will be presented on a Sunday morning. With broadcast culture, the advent of a programmatic worship service came to be. And I'm using programmatic in a very neutral sense, neither good or bad. But this is kind of the way that we do things here at Access, right? We think about what's going to come up for the next month, or the next quarter, or the next year. We pray about it. We pray about the themes. And then we craft message series. We choose books of the Bible. We choose worship songs that... Um, all head toward that same theme, and this makes a bigger impact. And a lot of churches follow a programmatic form of worship because it seems to have a, a larger and a bigger and more meaningful impact on people's lives with God than the church calendar. Now, this isn't always the case, but we have found that to be the case for access. To help us appreciate the power of combining image and emotion and thought into one through broadcast culture. Just think about how some some of us have grown up with these television shows whose, whose music and words still stay with us. I mean, even more so than memorizing things that have more value or more worth, like scripture, right? So how many people will still remember the theme from Gilligan's Isle and can actually sing that? Or how about some of the other shows that we grew up with? We can sing the introductory song, uh, and somehow it stays with us. It has a power to stick with us. The fourth and final shift that Miller brings up is the switch to digital culture. Digital culture is our online connected life with things like Google and Facebook and YouTube and all the different things that we have these days to to be interconnected with each other instantly through our phones and our devices and our laptops through mobile computing. Now, this is a really interesting time that we live in, and it is still evolving as we speak. And as I talk about this, there are really two types of people living in this new digital age. There are people that are considered like digital immigrants. This would be people like me who grew up without some of these technologies, but we are learning our way through them. Some of them still feel very foreign and maybe uh, a bit off-putting, but we engage in it, and some of it can be really, really good and very helpful. Then on the other hand, there are people who are digital natives. And these are people who grew up always connected. They never knew a life that was disconnected. And when the internet goes down, and the world has basically shut down for them. But a digital native is someone who has fluency, who's born into this, this culture. Now, I'm not going to do a whole heavy analysis of digital culture because this is the age in which we live in today. But I do have some questions for us to enter into this conversation around worship. With the shift to digital online culture, how have you seen the church evolve? What are some positive things and what are some negative things? And what might be a way for us to bring meaningful worship to God? What are some ways that we can bring new songs to God in this digital age? 
Now that takes us to our final challenge for today. And I want to describe this challenge that's before us. In two weeks, we're going to host an online worship gathering. And as a response to this series, I am inviting everyone to bring gifts of worship to God. And what could this look like? This might mean bringing a poem to God or a song. So last week, we referenced John Newton and his worship leader who wrote new songs for, for his congregation every week. They made new songs because they were first loved by a God who saved and rescued them. This, this could mean visual arts. You know, for this series, uh, our administrator, Carol Yip, uh, took photos of a paper wing that she crafted by hand. This is not computer graphics. This was something handmade. And this makes me think of the verse in Isaiah 40 that talks about those who hope in the Lord will soar on wings like eagles. And so maybe some of you who are inclined to visual art um, and using medium like paper or watercolor or paint, my invitation is to bring this to God and create an offering, create a mode of worship that can honor God. Maybe this could involve dance. You know, for thousands of years, people have danced for God. David was famous for his undignified dance before God, and God celebrated that. Maybe some of you want to bring story to God. Maybe you have a, a short story that you can share about how God has been faithful to you or your family or to the loved ones around you. So storytelling is another great way to bring our thanksgiving and our praise to God. And finally, pictures. Pictures can can be a great way for us to share about how God has been good. As we conclude today, I'd like us to read together the Psalms that we shared in the very beginning of this message. Let's read these together and worship God. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. I will sing a new song to you, my God. On the ten-stringed lyre, I will make music to you. Amen. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity in Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus. Amen.